This is an ABC podcast. It's that time of the year where longer evenings lend themselves to balmy nights of barbecues. There really is nothing better. But here in Australia, there is one fly in the ointment, so to speak. The pesky mozzie. Now, if you're like me, they love you. And there are many reasons why the female mozzie hones in on some of us rather than others. It could be that you're partial to beer or maybe you're partial to bananas or that you're fond of breaking out the old Hawaiian shirt come summertime as they do like contrasting colours. Or it could be your blood type. They're partial to a bit of type O blood and that's the most common type. And that's probably the most likely reason. (laughs) Now, for us mozzie-inflicted folk, there is some good news. Today in Australia Wide, I'm going to introduce you to a group of sentinel chickens. They're fighting the good fight and are the first line of defence against serious mosquito-borne disease. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. If you're the type who gets bitten by mosquitoes, you might have a chicken to thank if you haven't gotten sick because of a bite. Sophie Holder has this story for us. Like most chicken owners, Luke Bailey checks on his hens every day, collecting their eggs and feeding them vegetable scraps. But his chickens, which live in Manham, along the South Australian stretch of the River Murray, have a special role. Protecting South Australians from mosquito-borne viruses. Mr Bailey is a Regional Mosquito Surveillance and Control Officer for SA Health, and his flock is one of ten troops of chickens scattered along the River Murray and regional South Australia. With chickens being outside all the time, they are constantly being bitten by mosquitoes. If they are bitten by a mosquito that carries a virus, the chicken will develop antibodies. The chicken doesn't get sick or show any symptoms. Because the the chickens suffer no symptoms or uh, get sick from the virus, they're basically our first line of defence. So it just allows us to get health messages out when a chicken gets infected by a virus. From November to April, the chickens have their blood tested monthly to check for antibodies from viruses like Japanese encephalitis. The blood samples are tested and SA Health can issue public health warnings informing people to protect themselves from mosquito bites. Helping to protect people is especially important for Mr Bailey, who contracted Ross River virus around 15 years ago. I was starting to feel quite fatigued, uh, felt really sore in the hips and my ankles. I went to donate blood. Um, They suggested, based on my symptoms, that I should actually get a proper blood test done, and it came back as having Ross River, and I was probably out of action for about four weeks. But I'm one of the lucky ones because some people can have long-term effects from that virus. For Mr Bailey, the chickens are an opportunity to bring awareness. We love it, and it becomes a talking point when you're out in the community. Um, A lot of people aren't aware that, that this program even exists, so it's really good that we've got it and we can share that knowledge with everyone and help them become protected as well. So it's all about spreading the message. Upstream, Rebecca Burton is the Environmental Health Officer for the Renmark Paringa Council, where she tackles the problem through mosquito trapping. Mosquito traps use a small light and dry ice, which produces carbon dioxide to attract bugs, while a fan pushes them into a net below. We are not aiming to trap all the mosquitoes in the area or to kill them. 
we are just taking a sample of mosquitoes to see what species are around, um, the numbers that are getting around and also whether there's any virus present in the mosquitoes. Less than a year after the region experienced a major flooding event, Ms Burton says there's been a decrease in mosquito numbers. This season the numbers are low and in the Remark Pringa area we've yet to have any virus detection in the mosquitoes. Um, this is mostly due to the change in climatic conditions. It's a lot drier this year than it has been in the last couple of years. Craig Williams is a professor at the University of South Australia and says despite low mosquito numbers, it's important for management techniques like sentinel chickens and trapping to be ongoing. You have to maintain your surveillance of mosquitoes, mosquito-borne diseases. You, you maintain your, your control of mosquito populations because if something does pop up, a really bad new disease, a cluster of, of something new, you need to be able to respond and, and, and nip that in the bud. And having those management systems in place enables you to do that. Otherwise, you, you're caught well um, wrong-footed. Even without as many mosquitoes about, Dr Williams says it's important people do their best to avoid being bitten. There are thousands and millions of mosquitoes out there and really it would be a very small percentage that actually carry virus. You know, you can be bitten by a lot of mosquitoes and not get a virus, but you don't know which one that it's going to be that's going to be carrying the virus. Back in Manham, Mr Bailey says even though his flock of chickens have an important role in protecting people, most of the time they live a normal life. They're just eating, eating and, and having fun. They're very well looked after. SA Health provide the coops, the food, the watering devices, and then the families just make sure that they're, they're fed. So they have a very, very good life. Good to hear. South Australia Health Regional Mosquito Surveillance and Control Officer Luke Bailey ending that story from Sophie Holder. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. It's a key piece of equipment used to diagnose cancer, but not all major regional hospitals have one. Cancer patients in need of a PET scan currently have to drive or fly hundreds of kilometres, but some locals in Rockhampton and Queensland are fighting to change that. Katrina Bevan has this story. Eusti and Diana King's calendar is completely full, but not with social engagements, rather planned travel for health care. When Rockhampton local Eusti's journey with prostate cancer and melanoma began a couple of years ago, he knew it would involve a lot of trips to Brisbane to see specialists, something not uncommon for anyone with a serious illness in regional Queensland. But what surprised him most was a simple scan used to diagnose cancer was not available anywhere in central or western Queensland. I'm appalled actually that a major regional centre like Rockhampton doesn't have a PET scan. I think it's absolutely essential, uh, population-wise, catchment-wise, and the demographics of the people that live here. You know, there's a lot of people that are on the, you know, not haven't got a lot of money, haven't got a lot of whatever, and to have to travel away is a big disruption to them. So I think it's absolutely essential that we have one here. A positron emission tomography, or PET scan, is a type of imaging test used to diagnose cancer and other diseases. It can also be used to determine the best course of treatment, check how cancer is responding to treatment, or if the cancer has returned or spread. If you live in central or western Queensland and you need one, depending on whether you have private health or not, you can opt to travel to Bundaberg or Mackay or sometimes be flown to Brisbane. Eusti's wife, Diana King, says the pair have had to make the six-hour-plus round trip to Bundaberg several times to get a PET scan, often making it a day trip to avoid the extra hassle of organising accommodation. So, yeah, I'm pretty annoyed because it's neither of us 
spring chickens. We're both over 70, some on the higher end, some on the lower end. So it's quite tiring, uh, although we are used to travel. But, you know, you down and back in one day and the nervous stress and particularly with COVID. Central and Western Queensland are some of the many regional centres without a PET scan across the country. Though the federal government's recently announced 10-year national cancer plan had a heavy emphasis on approving health inequalities in regional areas, it didn't include specifics around increased PET scan machines in regional hospitals. And that's something health advocate Justine Christensen wants to change. She runs a free service supported by charity, taking regional patients from the Brisbane airport to hospital, as well as offering home-cooked meals. And she often deals with patients travelling for a PET scan. I mean, it's a long day for someone who is unwell or has been told that they possibly have cancer and and having to navigate their way around a city uh, that they may not be familiar with. So it's really important that the government has a look at uh, value for money. I mean, that's how patients are assessed in their applications for the patient travel subsidy. Is this the best way to spend public money for this patient to travel to Brisbane? And they keep getting approved, yes, instead of actually the government going, should we be bringing the service to them and put a PET scan there? Of course, we're talking about sick people, people that have physical limitations. For Diana King, given the state government recently announced a surplus of almost $14 billion in the previous financial year's budget, in a large part thanks to coal royalties from places like central Queensland, installing a PET scan in Rockhampton is a minimal ask. This is an area that is uh, supported largely by FIFOs, coal, um, that industry. I think we need it. In a statement, Queensland Health Minister Shannon Fentiman says a PET scan is a highly specialised service that not only needs extensive equipment, but also a specialist workforce and medications to be operated safely. But she did say the viability of getting one in the region will be considered in the future upgrades at the Rockhampton Hospital. While the federal government's Department of Health says in the previous financial year it spent $188 million through Medicare to support patient access to pet services. It says though there's no limitations for the number of Medicare-eligible PET scanners, they must be in a facility that provides a full range of diagnostic and oncology services. And thanks to Katrina Bevan for that story. You can read more about this on Australia Wide's webpage. This is ABC Australia Wide. The use of drones in every facet of life is ever expanding and in the Pilbara region of WA, the mining sector is looking to expand on the use of what they call big drones that are capable of taking weights of up to 55 kilos. This would allow the drones to deliver vital machinery equipment in the mining and oil and gas industry. Jane Murphy has this story from Karatha. When you think of drones, you may think of the military, photography or even food delivery. But drones are also an important tool in one of Australia's biggest money-making industries, the resources sector. BHP has been using drones for their iron ore operations for over a decade. I got my licence back in 2017 and and the trainer back then... um, wrapped it up pretty sweetly. He said, we use drones to remove people from dull, dirty or dangerous duties. 
So that's pretty much how we've implemented drones at BHP Iron Ore. That was BHP's chief remote pilot, Sean Van Gore. His team uses small to medium-sized drones to monitor equipment temperature using thermal imagery and remote data collection. Our blast technicians, they no longer have to walk over the heath, uh, exposing themselves to voids or cavities. Look, surveyors no longer have to drive into active mining areas, interacting with SME or surface mobile equipment. Geologists, they now have to walk up inclines in 40-degree days, exposing themselves to environmental threats. So that's been our approach. And now new government approval could see the use of drones expanded even further. WA-based tech startup Wedgetail Aerospace this year received Australia's first Civil Aviation Safety Authority approval to operate large-scale drones in commercial airspace. Now, these drones are huge. They can travel up to 600 kilometres in one flight, carrying payloads as big as 55 kilos. They could be used by government agencies for things like survey or photogrammetry, but most significantly, they have the potential to deliver vital machinery equipment to an offshore oil rig or a remote mine site in less than six hours, saving time and possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars in unplanned site shutdowns. Our focus is on bringing our capability to market. So we've spent several years working with CASA to get the regulatory approvals to be able to fly large drones like this. And in the commercial side, we think it can be used for survey, photogrammetry, LIDAR, and we think it can be used to deliver critical parts to high value industry like oil and gas or mining to solve their unplanned downtime. Dominic Letts is the Chief Operating Officer of Wedgetail Aerospace and says the company intends to set up a remote piloting hub in the country's iron ore heart, the Pilbara. The Pilbara has highly productive industry. It has iconic land and maritime environment and it's got the blessing of the tyranny of distance. So what that means is things are a a long way away from each other and you need transport to get goods or services from A to B. So we think this is a great place to utilise this technology. Now, if drones are becoming more involved in the resources industry, what will the future look like? According to Mr Van Gore, BHP's workforce will always be human. Well, that's a very interesting one, and everybody does get concerned about being replaced by robots. So we operate remotely piloted aircraft. This means that we're just taking the person out of the operating environment and we're putting that person into a safer environment. While drone technology is reaching new heights, industry is in no rush. Well, there's a lot we've got to learn. So flying beyond line of sight or sharing the same airspace or even operating heavy RPA is not something that we'll rush straight into just because the tech's available. Uh, We'll definitely do our studies over the next few years and weigh up the risk versus reward. Jane Murphy reporting there from Karatha in WA. Australia is not known for its skyscrapers. Generally, our cities tend to sprawl outwards not upwards. But the Gold Coast is an exception. It's far from the biggest city in the country. In fact, it's number six. But what sets it apart from most other Aussie cities is the absence of height limits for buildings along the coast. So what could the Gold Coast penchant for skyscrapers mean for housing availability? Nicholas McElroy has done a deep dive into the issue. When you look at Gold Coast city maps, some sections look like a tapestry of bright pink stitching. These lines from Main Beach south to Broad Beach mean there are no height limits on buildings. It's one reason why the city has an array of high-rises. But could it be a solution to the housing crisis? 
The, the Gold Coast is what I often refer to as sort of a classic postmodern city in that it has no center. Depending on who you ask, the center could be Southport, it could be Surfers, it could be Ravina. And, and Surfers in particular is, is largely geared towards tourists. So cramming as many as many people into Surfers as possible to, to fuel the tourism economy and to feed the development machine is, is probably a priority on the Gold Coast more so than other places. That's Thomas Sigler, an economic and urban geographer. Now, more residential towers are being built on the coastal strip. Here's Dr. Sigler again. We don't really have a, a long tradition of, of skyscrapers in Australia. The justification has changed over time. So we no longer really build skyscrapers to conserve space. Um, we mainly build them for prestige reasons and, and the, the motives of individual developers. Meriton's managing director, Harry Triggerboff, the billionaire who's earned the nickname High Rise Harry, recently had his 21st tower in the city approved. It will be home to a 1,000 units, alongside two other massive developments by his company. Mr Triggerboff says it's much easier to build on the Gold Coast because planners are more flexible than in Sydney. That's music to the ears of Council's planning chair, Mark Hamill. If one of the most prolific builders in the country um, is saying that we've got the right formula on the Gold Coast, that is why he's investing his money here and is why he's building dwellings here. I want to see more of that. He says the lack of a height limit acts as a lure for development, which is vital as the Queensland government says 900,000 homes need to be built in the state's southeast in the next 20 years. It is there as a carrot to encourage developers um, to join blocks together. So, so that HX is a bit of an incentive that if you are prepared to spend the time and spend the money to amalgamate blocks together so that we see significant well-planned master plan developments, um, then having more height um, on those sites is the right thing to do because it's the best place for it. The University of Queensland's planner-in-residence, Stephanie Wyeth, says while housing supply is important, it doesn't guarantee that it's affordable. Density doesn't equal affordability, like in these prime locations, unless we design it in, unless local governments and state governments are saying, look, we need to achieve a certain percentage of affordable housing in these buildings, that it's just not going to happen. This year is the first time we've actually had the three levels of government invested in social affordable housing as a conversation of the housing crisis. There's this groundswell saying we need to do better in terms of ensuring that there's housing available to people who are on low incomes. But also, I think we've hit a point where a number of people of influence have children who can't afford to rent, who can't afford to buy their own home. And so that I think that's hitting home for people. I think it'll take a while to come through, but I think there's a sense of urgency that there needs to, something needs to happen. The Gold Coast has some of the lowest social housing rates in the southeast Queensland region. Mark Hamill again. We are several thousand social houses behind where we should be based on the size of our population. That's a big concern because if we're already behind and we've got strong population growth predicted for the next 20 years, we can't let that deficit get any bigger. So, could unlimited heights help the housing crisis? Well, that depends, according to Dr Ziegler. Australians, typically native-born Australians, but increasingly migrants as well, you know, they want the Australian dream, which is a house and a car and a boat and a yard. And there's a lot of that on the Gold Coast, but it ain't going to last forever. But the idea is by building these super tall buildings, you're you're meeting your dwelling targets without tearing down houses. And that makes, ta- that makes voters happy as well, because they know that their neighbourhood isn't going to be densified with townhouses. Now, townhouses are, in my opinion, the best way to go, because they're, it's providing what I would call good density. But A, 
residents don't like it because it creates traffic on their street. Uh, and councils don't like it because townhouses are built in, in batches of two or four, not batches of 500. You know, from a sort of an architectural perspective, if there's one place in the state that had to absorb that, surfers would be the appropriate place because there's already a tradition of it. But yeah, look, the, the Gold Coast will continue to invent itself and reinvent itself. In a way, I think it's gone through a mini renaissance in the last sort of decade. It's like firmly on the map. Like when I talk to people about Australian cities, they go Sydney, Melbourne, Gold Coast. They don't even talk about Brisbane or Perth. You know, my prediction would be that the Gold Coast is, is going to double in population in the next sort of 30 to 40 years. And it's going to put a lot of pressure on the land, uh, which means it's going to get more expensive and, and you're going to have it's going to get worse before it's going to get better from an affordability perspective. Double the population. That's quite the expansion. Nicholas McElroy with that story from Queensland Gold Coast. ABC Australia Wide. People have feared the bunyip for centuries. It's a mysterious swamp creature in Australian folklore with frightful features and a monstrous roar. But in the New South Wales Hunter region, locals are now on a mission to save the Hexham bunyip and prevent it from becoming a myth. So it's this funny sort of Australian myth that sort of crosses both the Aboriginal worlds and European worlds. Johnny DeGravio is an archivist from the University of Newcastle and chair of the Hunt Living Histories. Through the historical records he deals with, he's found there's a bit of a legend about a bunyip out in Hexham. Picture this. It's a full moon and three miners are down by the water. They're on a day off, probably having a few drinks, and they're out in the swamp to go duck hunting. These guys basically went down to... Um, the Hexham Swamps to try and catch some ducks. And um, that's where he said these guys, you know, were camped out for most of the night and uh, they hadn't seen any ducks. And then at a particular time of the night, just before they were planning to return, they heard this gigantic frightening roar of a lion in the middle of the, of the swamp. One of the men would tell the papers that they had heard a tremendous roar, like that of a lion, but very much more powerful. And they saw eyes like two golden orbs, about the size of soup plates. The myth of the Hexham Bunyip took root in the community, beginning almost the next day. They actually, you know, local people sent, you know, seven or eight men with guns and dogs out into Hexham Swamp in the 1870s, I think, just to try and try and find the bunyip and I think they ended up shooting a pelican. Jen Lewis is a project officer at Hunter Local Land Services. She knows the wetlands better than most people do, definitely better than those men did. What people locally were calling the bunyip, the creature behind that huge roar, was actually a bird, an Australasian bittern, a bird that might be as hard to find as a bunyip is. I'm heading out to Hexham Swamp with Jen to see the site for myself. Jen has never seen a bittern bird in the Hexham Swamp, despite the fact she has been out here looking countless times. Bitterns are so rare that it took her two years to even hear one. It's a type of heron, but it doesn't look like the types of herons that people might be familiar with. I guess if you crossed a heron with the colouring of a quail and made it a bit bigger. <laughs> so so that, that's kind of what we're looking at. It really is a unique bird. Across Australia, there are meant to be only around 1,300 of them left. 
The trouble is, it's hard to know if that number is accurate because the bittern is that good at staying hidden and camouflaging itself. The bittern, um, it hunts its prey by sort of really quietly stalking. It's, it's making its living out of being quiet and cryptic and hard to see. It's predator response so the way it responds to danger is it'll stick its neck up in the air and you'll see photos of them doing this stick its neck up in the air and stand perfectly still and pretend it's a reed. Jen's part of a whole team of people who are working together to conserve the hunter wetlands and to help preserve the bittern's presence here. Jen will often come out here with other volunteers and stand amongst the reeds listening for the bittern's call. And that's been really valuable so that's where we've also picked up them calling here and further so it's really exciting. It's a little bit of a sanctuary here that's what I, I always feel a bit calmer and, and more at peace whenever I'm out here mm. and it is pretty magical because bitterns are more likely to call when it's a full moon, when uh, it's really still, when it's a really lovely evening. So standing out here with the full moon and beautiful calm quiet evening it's actually it's actually a really lovely thing to do to just stand in the quiet and have a listen. It's a great sound, isn't it? That was Jen Lewis from Hunter Local Land Services and she was speaking to Larice Dixon. And if you want to hear more of, about this story, check out the latest episode of Newcastle Cast out now on the ABC Listen app. And that is Australia-wide for this week. Thanks very much to Asha Couch for all of her production this week. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.